0: Writing something which you tell people this is how it is and this is how you ought to act is, is valuable. But to create a world in which you feel it and you breathe it in such that it actually becomes a part of you. Because we all know the experience of, say, seeing something with a mind and realizing, I, I believe that's true. But we all also know the experience of saying, and yet I wish that my life corresponded with that. I wish that I didn't just have it in my brain but actually embodied it in the way I live, the way I feel, the way I breathe. Literature is the ability to download head knowledge and turn it into
1: heart knowledge. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Jason Baxter teaches great books at Notre Dame. His most recent book is The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. Just as Lewis reclaimed the medieval's enchanted view of reality, Dr. Baxter reclaimed Lewis's vision for our generation. Jason Baxter, I'm very glad to have you on the Habit podcast today to talk about your new ish book, not brand new, but new-ish book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. Thank you. So tell me what you mean by the medieval. What 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 is what do you mean by medieval mind?
0: Right. The historians mean that medieval Medieval means like stuff that happened between 500 and 1500 AD. Okay. But in terms, of, in terms of sort of approaching the world, um, I always fall back on a metaphor that Lewis himself uses in transposition, which is, I think, as, as great a sermon as Weight of Glory. And Weight of Glory actually does some similar things. But there in transposition, Lewis says, imagine a going and attending a symphony. And it's a magnificent symphony, and this is the age before electronically recorded music, and you want to hear it again. Well, you order, or I guess in Lewis's case, you go to Blackwell's bookstore, um, you you get yourself a score for it, maybe for, you know, for two or four piano hands, and you get a good friend to come over and play it for you. And as you play it, you can r- recall what you had heard in the symphony hall the week before, even though sometimes the G note that you play represents a flute, and sometimes it represents a violin. Now Lewis took this an interesting step further, just using this kind of idea, this metaphor of this symbolic cosmos, this participatory cosmos, that the very world of matter and time and space is like the piano keyboard with respect to the symphony. The symphony being these kind of invisible, heavenly realities. If you want, we could call them qualitative realities. The various types of things that in that very strange seance scene and that hideous strength, Merlin and Ransom are trying to invoke and call down, or rather sort of pull themselves up into it. The medieval mind, I guess you could say, is the type of psychological expectation that everything we see in this world is doing its best to point out a fuller and richer reality Which it represents, which it participates in, but merely as an icon, merely as a type of symbol. But it's at its saturation point in its effort to represent this bigger reality because time and space are lower level languages, so to speak, inferior languages, you know, working their best to try to represent this higher level language. And so, unlike for us, right, in which we think that. The best thing that there is is what we have with us right now in terms of time and space. The medievals had this kind of, you know, according to Lewis, had this kind of funny pilgrim's heart in which they thought that these traces of beauty were the best that they could do, the best, the sound, the sound that they could catch, the vision that they could look at, all, but only out of the corner of their eye. And thus had this kind of pilgrim's heart of longing of this of this super sensible reality that's the
1: medieval mind okay um you used a phrase qualitative realities can you say a little bit i'm not sure i understand what you mean by that phrase qualitative realities
0: yeah i don't know if i understand either um I, i think that's in part kind of the the modern condition i guess this is what i mean is that um historians of science and culture say that one of the chief aspects of modernity is is not only say the discovery of time but the invention of devices which we can divide it into perfect little units of seconds Uh we were we are aware and feel time passing in a way that our ancestors you know didn't they just had a different relationship with time and so for us the sort of constant feeling of that it's it's always going and then that we can sort of, we can accelerate, right? We can increase our velocity within time in order to do things and accomplish things. This is what I mean by quantitative realities, realities which can be broken down into little bits and pieces and units and then measured in terms of time and space. Qualitative realities are those things which exist, um, sort of realities of the spirit, realities of the heart, realities of the mind. Which we as moderns um as as lewis puts it in the weight of glory have come to doubt the existence of um mm-hmm. this so- again as i mentioned earlier the, the sort of things invoked in that hideous strength things like things like um wit and genius and loyalty and courage and fortitude and a heart aching love for the beloved and depth like saturnine depth and a jovial ceremonial spirit, and you could probably even also add a sense of beauty. These are qualitative realities, yeah. realities which are not necessarily unfolding within the world of time and space and technology and productivity. Again, Lewis, I think, was very prescient about this. His quick hand definition of why we're so strange with respect to the rest of history, and maybe actually even touching on his very vocation as a writer, is... That we are the people who have lived under the the regime of the machines for so long, away from nature for so long, that we've begun to doubt these qualitative realities which our ancestors felt deeply in tune with. Uh huh.
1: Okay. So when you say medieval mind, like uh, so many people when they hear medieval, they picture, you know, something like Monty Python's Holy Grail, where everything's muddy and and you know, superstitious. Yeah, plagues, Yeah, all, all those you know, th- these, these, uh, things that we have left behind in our, you know, age of hygiene <laughs> and, uh, and other, uh, uh, well, it, even, even to, to, uh, to say something like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go medieval on that person means I'm going to be violent and unreasonable. That's
0: right. Yeah. You're reciting Pulp Fiction there.
1: And, okay. I didn't even <laughs> know what I was reciting. Yeah. Um, and, um, but as you say, uh, you, you make the case, in, in your your uh, now I can't remember which of which of Lewis's books it is that that he talks about this idea. I mean, that uh, in many of his books, but the idea that for the medieval mind, uh, the medieval mind loved to catalog and to uh, to to pay attention to detail and to see the connections between you know a uh, the things right yeah. the things of birth and the, and the not in a superstitious way, but in a in a way that was. I mean, I'm sure there were superstitions, just as we have superstitions now. But, but uh, the idea that that we're seeing a a wholeness in the seen and the unseen, um, right? That involves you know, you- a an attention to detail and a um, a mental energy, a mental and and uh, spiritual energy that I'll, that allows them to pay attention. That allows them to pay attention for longer than we we're able to, to pay attention. For instance.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's without question. I, I mean, I think, I mean, Lewis himself just said it brilliantly in one, in the opening chapter to his book on 16th century literature. He just titles that introduction, New Learning and New Ignorance. Mm. And I think just having said that, I think and I think uh, his buddy Owen Barfield's sort of philosophy of history is vaguely working in the background of this chapter, in which is something like this, that the story of modernity is one of gain and one of loss. In which we've gained greater control over our external realities. Um, I know we we have we have more clothes and of warmer qualities, and we can go places faster. Um, But as Lewis put it, our grandfathers got more out of ten miles, a ten mile walk, than we get out of a one hundred mile drive. Mm. That, Mm. in some sense, the externalization, the peripheralization of our lives, means that we've gained power in terms of the material realities which we can control kind mm-hmm. of use a type of reverse engineering but what we've lost is a is a sense of interiority uh, a mm-hmm. sense of a sense of the ability to to stay in reverent silence in tune with these qualitative realities and so it was, it's it's a mixed bag but lewis rather optimistically along with his friend barfield sort of projected this time in which the gains of modernity, and the depth and interiority, interiority of antiquity, could once again be remarried, and could go about hand in hand again, mm-hmm. in which we would we would be scientific, uh, without being a religious, and we would be great engineers, but also have these types of feats of can I say this poetic attunement to the world, which in our world of acceleration and the psychological internalization of the f- forces of newtonian of newtonian physics we become deaf to and
1: blind to mm. do you uh, have similar hope that these two things that, that we have a that, that we look forward to a marriage of these two things oh man what a great
0: question i long for that um yeah. in terms of like predicting it's reality. I, th- I think Lewis probably had more faith than I do. And mm-hmm. again, I'm, that hideous strength is very much on my mind right now, right? But in this hilarious situation, on one side of the equation, you have an international force of uh, of wealthy investors who have an infinite amount of capital, and they intend to take over the world, Right. And they're going to infiltrate the educational system and change curricula. And they're going to develop uh, uh, neurobiological technologies to manipulate the very chemistry of the brain. And they've already planted journalists in all the major newspapers to manipulate public opinion. I'm super futuristic, I know, right? but I mean, these people have access to billions of dollars of capital, right? And that's one side of the equation. And the other side of the equation is ransom and a couple of uh, <laughs> a couple of grad students and professors of medieval literature. And these are the this is the great battle, right? <laughs> and the college professors win. Yeah. And in part because I think Lewis thinks that the gospel is written on the human heart. Mm. And so you shouldn't be surprised to see it erupt again when people remember its its radical call, mm. as well as 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 well as people who still remember how to read it. Um, who still remember, I guess, you know, the theme, the theme of this show, how to write about it mm-hmm. and how to get access to it, how to become attuned with it. So Lewis, Lewis was very hopeful that. In some sense, no no matter how bad the headlines of the news are and uh, whatever is, you know, trending on uh, your social, your favorite social media platforms, that these qualitative realities, right? These these ancient, archaic, primitive things of loyalty and love and courage and beauty and, and friendship and communion can never entirely die because they're written on the human
1: heart. Yeah. Our blindness to them doesn't make them any less real or yeah, uh, you know, reality is that which continues to exist whether i see it or believe in it or not or not
0: exactly and lewis seems to think that you know a couple dozen a couple dozen people in each generation will be enough to to keep this fire alive mm-hmm. reminds yeah. me of my favorite line from cormac mccarthy who indeed gives a very bleak picture of the universe and the road but at one point his son says to the father dad we're the good guys right <laughs> the dad sort of says reluctantly yeah, I guess so. And the son says because we have the secret fire. Yeah, that's right, son. We've got the secret fire. <laughs> so I guess sort of thinking of Lewis as the writer of the secret fire, yeah, who good. who who knows how to who knows how to get that clean flame to burn again.
1: Yeah. Okay. One thing you told me that I didn't know. You told me right before we started recording. I didn't know is that you teach creative writing. You you're in, uh, mixed up with an MFA program in <laughs> Houston. Uh, uh, remind me, this the experience.
0: yeah yeah it's the mfa program at university of saint thomas in houston yeah uh my friends joshua wren and james matthew wilson founded this and it's an all on well all online program with opportunities to be in the flesh and it's just really kind of exploded yeah. so i think i think it speaks to this to our our current desire to in our you know digitized quantified accelerated age to try to touch these things and um, both in terms of creating audiences and um, and being writers. I, I don't think I'm yet um, allowed to take the lofty title of creative writer. It's something I'm actually working on, something that maybe in the next couple of years I'll actually affect. But right now, um, I, we're, I'm teaching a, a kind of introduction to, uh, uh, it's called foundations, kind of an introduction to some of these great texts. And so we're reading Virgil's Aeneid, we're reading augustine's confessions and we're also reading uh, dante's comedy so the types of the types of deep things which in lewis's imagination these are the types of things which could be recycled which could be changed modernized adapted brought into a fresh context and made entirely new their stories so good that they don't deserve to die even if even if just by historical accident they now you know to a certain extent feel dated to our contemporaries so we're reading those.
1: Uh-huh. So can you talk to me about this is a very broad question, so forgive me, but these big ideas you've been talking about, how do they shape the way you talk about the the practicalities of writing, of of communication, of storytelling?
0: Yeah, at some point, it kind of snuck up on me in the past couple of years in which I had, you know, wanted to be a writer, had wanted to call myself a writer. But when I was making a CV or, you know, writing a description of myself, I would say, Jason Baxter is a writer. And then I would hit, dilly, mm, delete, 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 <laughs> Not yet. Not yet, Baxter. You haven't earned it, right? <laughs> um, but I think at some point it snuck up on me. And I'm, I'm afraid I have to call myself by that title now. I just, I can't not do it. Um, it's, It's... Yeah, I'm sure a lot of your listeners feel the same way. It's it's in the bones, it's in the heart, and I think, and as I've begun to kind of think about what that is, I, I think it also goes along with my teaching as well. I think I've been teaching long enough now where I've become uh, I've become allergically react you know reactive to my students being bored, hmm. and when I feel them tuning out, when I feel their sort of eyes you know glazing over and leaning back in their desk, I I I feel this kind of I'll even put it this way, physiological need to say to them, don't you realize what's happening here? But you can't just say that, right? You have to sort of demonstrate it by means of your language and demonstrate it by means of your ideas. Every single big idea has to be illustrable, if I may, <laughs> in in a concrete particular situation which is memorable and moving. So I think as a writer, I, I think I, I, what I found myself is seeking these uh, these kind of acts of micro-incarnation. That is to take ideas, to flesh them in actually written language and concrete sound and concrete ideas so that then my audience says, oh, wow, that's what that means. Mm. I mean, isn't it weird? and and again maybe this is a sort of symptom of our of our quantifiable reality but isn't that weird that you know people think that christianity is you know a collection of the 17 correct opinions or that you know that you could ascribe to whatever sort of movement or or party or whatever by means of having correct opinions mm-hmm. i think in some sense that you know the writer is the one who's constantly trying to take those ideas which are rattling around in the brain and create them in sensible palpable sensuous if i can use a fancy term haptic realities that is things which can be touched things can, which can be tasted as I, as i've been increasingly putting it as i've been working on my translation uh of of dante realities which you feel less in the head and more in the veins more in the pulse and and more in the fingertips of uh, yeah in your fingertips mm-hmm. truths which you with, truths which are embodied and i feel like this is um this is in tune both with, you know, kind of Old Testament scriptural realities, as well as just classical culture in general, right? You remember that some of these prophets are, are told, um, Ezekiel, right, um, pick up the scroll. <laughs> and he's not told to read it, he's told to eat it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. eat the scroll. And, you yeah. know, Ezekiel starts munching on this thing and it says, behold, it was like honey into my mouth. So I guess just, you know, thinking about, and I think that's what we as writers can do in our in our in our age of kilobytes and downloadable information is that we can create these haptic realities in which ideas are tasteable feelable sensuous palpable have weight or in the veins and in the pulses so i suppose that's what i'm i'm after both as a teacher and as a writer of these kind of what i want to call these micro incarnations mm-hmm. in which an idea a thesis statement at the beginning of the you know at the beginning of the book beginning of the chapter being in the class Everyone all of a sudden begins to to answer the question, so what? Why does this matter? Now we can feel it and now we understand what the consequences of this idea are.
1: Yeah. You got a whole chapter in uh the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis that you call breathing Narnian Air, that I think is relevant to, to what you're talking about here. The 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 difference between an idea that we can analyze and um and inhabiting that idea as an experience i mean even something like um with michael ward's book about the, the uh, planet narnia right there's there's this this whole systematize and, and this is such a great uh, a great example i think of what you even mean by the medieval mind you know when michael ward identified that system systematization of the um of the planets and the and the uh Classical gods of those planets were associated with, you know, Jupiter and Saturn and, and all those. And when he identified how those play themselves out in the the seven books of the, the Narnia chronicles, right? You one way you put it is that's not a. It's not that we've got now we have some secret code that unlocks anything in particular. Rather, it gives us an opportunity to breathe in what it's like to to breathe Saturnine air and jovial air and. I, and the other the other planets um can you speak to that because that seems my summary there kind of fell apart at the end but i i, I bet you can uh,
0: yes I'm, absolutely I mean, well, I mean at one point lewis says um that part of the charm of writing a quote unquote a fairy tale or writing this type of flexible imaginative literature is that you can kind of sneak up on religious sentiments whereas in the uh in their kind of strange brittle cold clean delineated forms in sunday school again there's sort these sort of um you know these sort of things that you're supposed to memorize and then like employ as as principles um there's this one cambridge theologian david ford who says that most of the time christianity does its religion in the indicative and the imperative moods that is it says the world is like this now go and do this whereas ford says you know what we need though is more Christianity, more Christian writing in the subjunctive mood. He's, he's thinking of sort of like classical classical languages like a Latin or a Greek, right? A kind of exploratory question. What if it were like this? You know, the subjunctive is the, is the mood of hopes, dreams, fears, and desires, right? So I think by, in some sense, maybe you could even just say that creative writing, um, this type of fairy tale is... Is the world in the subjunctive mood. Ooh, mm-hmm. ooh, ooh, ooh. What if the world were like this? What if there were what if there were like this lion kind of character and he and then you just begin to sort of build from there? So you create this world which has a strange atmosphere. But I think for Lewis and I think also for Tolkien, the fun thing about entering into these worlds is you might change some of the you might change some of the um the fundamental, you know, it was change some of the, the the accidents but you can't change the deep laws mm-hmm. you can't and so in some sense the the more creative you are in inventing the world the more surprised you are almost like a scientist a chemist walking into his uh, his lab and you know mixing two chemicals together and say what will happen if i do this <laughs> I, the writer is more like the scientist than i think people people realize you invent a world but then you have to be faithful to these characters you have to be faithful to a plot and so in some sense you're as surprised as any of your readers how these things actually turn out right i had no idea he would say that it makes perfect sense but now that he has said that i i realize. and so i think that's what you know lewis and sort of inventing these worlds you know you begin with a couple of crazy assumptions what if there were this lion who was kind of capable of incarnating himself right and visited children and then all of a sudden, you find yourself accidentally, quote, unquote, writing uh, writing a story which is consonant with the deep principles of Christianity. But in a way, Lewis almost felt like he, like I said, he was doing a scientific experiment and accidentally proving these kind of deep qualities of the human heart. Because even in this world, he couldn't get away from them. They asserted themselves. He, As hmm. he says himself, right, I just began with a couple of images, right? I had this lion and I had this fawn with a package under his arm and an umbrella, and I just started building a world in which those guys met each other. And this is what came out. I wasn't trying to write an allegory. I promise. Of course, Lewis critics don't believe him. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, creating and, you know, creating, you know, I don't know, writing something which you tell people, this is how it is. And this is how you ought to act is, is valuable. But to create a world in which it, like I was trying to say earlier, in which you feel it and you breathe it in such that it actually becomes a part of you because we all know and this is something that I've written about a lot in terms of Dante, we all know the experience of say seeing something with the mind and, and realizing I, I believe that's true. But we all also know the experience of saying and yet I wish that my life corresponded with that. I wish that I didn't just have it in my brain but actually embodied it in the way I live, the way I feel, and then we'll just go back to our metaphor, the way I breathe. Literature is the ability to download head knowledge and turn it into heart knowledge. Mm. Right? You're not streaming. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've saved it on the device. And in this case, the device is the heart.
1: Mm. Yeah. I love the way, you know, one way I've put it before is in Narnia, it's it's not Lewis talking to us about the importance of staying warm it's him building a fire and saying doesn't that feel good don't you like that doesn't it feel good to to be warm like this
0: i like that yeah yeah absolutely yeah exactly and i think the i think the the fun thing to notice about lewis is that he keeps changing his metaphor that thing that you just described being in the presence of this type of warmth you know the medievals called it the uh the uh the the, the splendor of truth as if the, you know, you could say the spiritual radioactivity of true things. Look, if it's true, it's going to be beautiful, and if it's beautiful, you're going to want to embody it in your life. Hence the you know the well known uh, truth, beauty, and goodness, right? If it's true, it's going to shock you with its with the depth of its truthfulness, and when that happens, you're going to want it to be part of your you know part of your body, part of your life, part of your heart. Hence, sort of responsive goodness. And so I think it's cool that Lewis spent his whole life looking for metaphors to try to describe this. And sometimes he talks about it as breathing. Sometimes he talks about it in his cool little essay, Meditations in the Toolshed, mm-hmm. as looking along the beam as opposed to looking at it, right? Not just seeing the light beam suspended in the dust particles, but then orienting the eye so that he looks along the beam and sees that which is behind it. Sometimes he calls that enjoyment versus contemplation and so he himself is constantly shifting his metaphors in this i think beautiful and sort of desperate attempt to try to put his finger on what this thing the writer can't not
1: do is yeah enjoyment versus contemplation um tell me about the the difference between those two and and how they are um how those different i mean because i mean you're talking about you're working on dante and contemplation was important to dante
0: Yes. Um,
1: and I mean, so important in, in that whole tradition. And yet, the enjoyment, well, tell me, what's, what's the relationship between, between those? You're making a distinction, but I think that there's also a relationship between those things, right?
0: Oh, I love that. That's very medieval of you. <laughs> yes, um, there there is. Um, in that, I've mentioned the meditations in a tool shed. Yeah. right in which in which lewis pictures himself walking into a little garden shed and there's a there's a crack there's some busted wood up at the top and a little beam of light is coming through it and it's suspended in dust particles and you can look at it and then he does this thought experiment which he goes and orients his body so that it, the beam is falling directly on his eye and he says you know what happens the the beam quote unquote disappears mm-hmm. all you see is the reality behind it the sunny sky which is its origin. But then you could rotate back out and you could look at the beam. And then you could come back in and reorient yourself and look along the beam. I mean, this is my idea that basically this is why Lewis's nonfiction and fiction were not at odds, mm-hmm. but sort of represent this constant orientation and reorientation throughout his whole life of talking about ideas, but then positioning himself so that you could feel the idea. Yeah, that's good. This is why such he was an, such a great lecturer for students he had all these packed out lecture halls in Oxford because he was very he was very much a whole brain learner. He would delineate these kind of principles and talk about where you could find these ideas and then what text and what you know what dates these various books were written in and what type of Latin you can find it and what manuscripts. But then he would say, yeah yeah yeah, that's a bunch of technical stuff, but what did it feel like to actually believe these things And yeah. so I I think that I think you're right I think he's constantly rotating back and forth and they are related. I mean, our medieval ancestors would have used some fancy Latin to describe the difference. They would have said this looking at the beam, right? This contemplation is what we mean by ratio or reason. Mm -hmm. It's that categorizing part of the intellect in which I ask how many things are there and how are they related and do they have some sort of secret unity? But then once you've done all that kind of you know, um, parsing and splicing and organizing things in your different bends, then there's this faculty, which Lewis thought that the moderns had forgot, called intelligentsia. Yeah. This is the intellect. This is the intuition. This is the feeling faculty, which wants to get inner access to, to not just to how to categorize ideas, but the realities which they represent. And in trying to gain that attunement with them, to a certain extent, we become like them. So it's one thing to say, give me a proper definition of of sin or a proper definition of virtue. It's another thing to write about virtue in the sort of way that I begin to not just crave it, but while I'm in its presence, begin slowly to to become like it, as if I'm in the Mm -hmm. magnetic field. And I think... This is what really medieval literature is all about, is trying to cast this magnetic field in which while we stand within it, we're under its influence and become like it. And I think this is the very idea of writing that Lewis thought that he could uh, re-import back into modernity.
1: Yeah. If you think about those writers who have their themes that sometimes they write nonfiction and sometimes they write fiction. Somebody like Wendell Berry, I'm always so interested in the difference between the different effect that Wendell Berry has on me as a, as an essayist, as opposed to the way his novels have an effect on me. Um, and I, I certainly benefit from the arguments that he makes as a, as an essayist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those arguments sometimes sink in a little deeper when he plays them out in, mm. in fiction. You know,
0: when yeah. He, when you go live in Port Royal,
1: Kentucky. That's right. Uh, right. And Imagine. when I, uh, he can explain, you know, farm policy to me like you know the sort of department of agriculture policy right uh and the or he can explain the the mechanization of uh, uh agriculture which i find very helpful and, and stimulating and interesting yes um and then when i go see what happens to a place like port royal kentucky after the mechanization of of uh Mm-hmm. agriculture and after you know, agribusiness comes in that's a whole other that's a whole other experience i, I you know uh that's right. his essays never inspire me to go want to go live in rural kentucky but his novels kind of do yeah they've, they've never inspired me enough to actually pull up stakes and move but
0: yes yes yeah i love that i think And I think this is what Lewis felt was so present in in medieval literature. This ability, not just to illuminate the mind, but to make the heart warm with desire. In fact, that's just kind of a half plagiarization of something that Beatrice says to Dante in Paradiso. She says, the mind has not understood until the foot moves. Mm. The mind has not understood until the foot moves. I think is what you just said about, you know what, sitting around reading Wendell Berry's fiction. I half want to sell my house and move to rural Kentucky. Yeah. The mind has understood, and now you feel the the foot of your heart actually sort of reaching out, like whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, yeah. I've got a career here, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and in the essays, the essays in, invite one to argue back, right? I mean, that's the that's the essence of an essay is I'm going to make an, an argument, and the essence of an argument is someone I can argue back. Um. I'm right. less inclined to argue back at a novel, uh, for better or worse. Right? And that's not that's that's not necessarily a a good right. thing. It's just it's a thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, so I think that's kind of brings up something interesting. You know, we, you and I are, um, and probably your listeners are so sold on the beauty of literature and fiction that. We could even ask ourselves this other question. Well, I mean, we're not asking what most people would ask. Sorry, remind me what the value of literature is. You know, it doesn't it doesn't make devices which make my my life more comfortable or or my job more time efficient. We're so sold that we're in some sense even asking the the opposite question. Sorry, remind me what the value of nonfiction is. Right? Why don't we just sort of remain in this in this you know to use Lewis's terms, state of enjoyment as opposed to rotating back out and looking along the beam. I think that's an interesting question. But I think, uh, as I always like to tell my students, a g- good contemplation, and you were asking earlier about how these things are related, good use of the medieval term ratio always makes our intelligentsia better. Or to put it in more up-to-date terms, good use of contemplation always makes our enjoyment deeper. And so by sort of rotating back out and say, you know, pointing out facts, makes the the very enjoyment of the thing richer i mean it's kind of like um you know if someone wants to be a really good craftsman um say i don't know make make uh make lovely furniture like in the old days right the sort of like you know 18th century hand carved furniture you could give a powerpoint show about you know how to build furniture say they have no experience and it wouldn't really do any good yeah You put things in their hands and you let them start to develop a sense of, of weight for how to use these different types of tools and the skillfulness that they need to have in their fingers. And then they're going to make something and it's going to be terrible. <laughs> and they're going to compare <laughs> it against the you know the master's work and they're going to say, this is garbage. But now all of a sudden they'll say, okay, now give me some ideas, thoughts, and principles. Give me your PowerPoint show and tell me how to do this better. But in some sense, having the experience to whatever extent, the experience of enjoyment Makes them want to to do that type of contemplation, so they can return with uh, with more skillfulness in doing the very act itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um, there's uh, probably Chesterton. I, now I'm drawing a blank on on who talks about the idea of giving somebody a longing for the sea is one way to to move them along in their shipbuilding. Um, you still have to have the the shipbuilding manual but you but a longing for the sea will really move that process along and and i mean i think we're talking about rotating from looking along the beam to to, to yeah, looking at right. the beam
0: that's right and isn't that probably also why um our school system is such a disaster is that w- we we basically have our students build ships but they don't know that the sea exists mhm And so it's just a, it's a painful, pointless activity. It's kind of like, you know, growing up in the world in which your, your parents inflict piano at you, on you, right? (laughs) And you just do these scales and you do these chords and, but there's no, but in a world of electronic music, right? If you don't come from a family that actually, you know, has moments in which everyone sings and plays the piano, it just seems like this terrible, pointless, painful academic exercise, right? In which there's, there's nothing to aspire to. Musical kids become musical because they see their parents loving it. And that's why I was jokingly say with my students that, look, your kids will get anything that you love for free. <laughs> Everything else will cost them. Whatever yeah, you yeah. love, you want your kids to be good at something, love it. Yeah. Then they'll get it.
1: Yeah, that's good. I love it. Um, hey, all the uh, one more question about the, um, the, the beam in the tool shed looking at the beam is one thing looking along the beam is another thing we're looking you know along the beam toward the sun is seeing the world illuminated is that a third thing or does that count as looking along the beam?
0: Wow that's kind of beautiful seeing the world sacramentally seeing the world symbolically
1: um oh, actually I'm just talking about at the moment I'm I'm just literally seeing the world that is lit by that you can't see without that that sun. Yeah, I, we can get I to the think, symbols in a minute,
0: but well, I think you've stumbled on something brilliant. I think, in I, like in some sense, what if you could you do both enjoyment and contemplation simultaneously? Right? Could you um, could you have both a sort of a sense, uh, uh, a kind of vision of the interior of things, while also knowing about them simultaneously? And I think that's mm-hmm. exactly what we were talking about earlier in the show of Lewis's and, and Barfield's hope to see the reconciliation of what we now call stem and humanities in which in some sense you would be doing those things simultaneously they would be mapped onto
1: each other yeah, yeah that's good um we're about to run out of time I, I i've got this whole list of questions i didn't even get to but but We had a we had a conversation instead. That's Uh, that's a compliment, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Let's, uh, but let's do. I really want to hear your answer to a question that I ask everybody else, and that is: Who are the writers make you want to write?
0: I love my Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. I love Dante, of course. I love Homer. I love Lewis, Um, and I have a small list of uh, of academic writers mm-hmm. that i sometimes they even an academic sometimes write something which is as truthful to the mind as it is to the heart and it's kind of what it's kind of a work of genius so something who, like uh, who are these people give me a look tell me about some of these people well besides our besides our beloved lewis who i mean certainly does that in in no. in his writings um i would say someone like leclerc um and the um uh, and his book on desire and knowledge and the love of God. Okay. It writes about something that which you might think would be boring. Um, that is uh, the, <laughs> the learning techniques and the, the writing techniques of medieval writers, but writes about it in such a beautifully holistic and embodied mm-hmm. way that uh, <laughs> you find yourself thinking this is the most urgent thing uh, that mm-hmm. you've ever read. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm currently in the middle of Marshall Berman's, all that is solid melts into air about what modernity is like, what modernity feels like. And so I guess, you know, having been asked this question now that I just zoom out a little bit, one, I suppose this is exactly the type of writing that I'm always trying to do myself. And two, that is a kind of whole brained writing that is, you know, we all know about left brain learners. They're the logical, linear folks who like syllogisms and systems and methods, and we need them. And then there are the right brain learner folks who are the artistic, the intuitive. And if you listen to a talk that they give, it's, it's, it's really frustrating mm-hmm. because you have no idea what the central thesis is, and you have no idea how they've tried to <laughs> prove that, but we need them too. I think what I try to do is try to do writing which does something like both of these things simultaneously, mapped onto each other. That is, in, in terms of my criticism, in terms of my uh, my academic writing and popular writing, that I want to th- I want to both break things down into elemental units and describe the mechanism of how they work together, but then I want to rebuild it. And I guess my model for this is Lewis, and let people know what it actually feels like if you thought these things were true. Yeah. So I love I love writing like that in terms of my nonfiction, um, but maybe even my fiction writers do something like this as well.
1: Yeah, great. Well, Jason Baxter, thank you so much. It's been so fun to, to talk to you. Hope we can talk again soon. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com/donate.